the priority is education, collaboration, and sustainability. Hey, you guys, it is December 29th. I hope you all had a very, very Merry Christmas. This week is a re-release of one of my favorite episodes. It's with Farmstead Meats, which was so much fun. They were a guest way back uh, in season one, and we just had a blast with this. So I wanted to go ahead and reshare it with you guys while I'm enjoying the holiday with my family. So I'm Megan Weiss. I am one of the owners of Farmstead Meats LLC. It is a limited liability company that has three owners and we all bring something kind of unique to the table. An overview of our business is that um, we started in response to COVID. And one of the reasons that we did this is that we all have some type of ranching background, either our families or individually. And we saw a need, decided that maybe it's time that we look at doing things a little differently and focus more on local and how we could connect our practices, maybe other ranch and farm practices, and sell local meat. And kind of just went from there. And now we have a store. Our business model is trying to connect farms, ranches, local artisans with products that the consumers are wanting and centralize a location through our practices in our store. Perfect. Um, And where are you located? You're in Red Bluff? We're in Northern California. We are in Tehama County. So all three owners live in Tehama County. We are, um, you know, we have beef, pork, and then we buy lamb and chicken from other producers in Northern California. So I would say we're more regional. Perfect. You said that you have, like all three of you guys have different backgrounds in ranching or farming. What is yours? Like, how did you get started? My family, I would say it's definitely generational. And my family has been in the cattle business and in Northern California since uh, the early 1850s. So that um, they've been here a long time. They actually also raised sheep and some of them raised pigs. And when we're talking about, they were, you know, fairly large ranches. And then over the years, uh, my grandparents still continued to ranch cattle, not sheep or hogs anymore. And then when I was in FFA, 4-H and FFA, I really enjoyed raising animals. My family, unfortunately, my parents didn't have a huge, large ranch. We grew up on just 13 acres and, you know, had more of like just a little farm in my parents' were definitely supportive of that, but it wasn't something that was sustainable enough for them for a practice, for a livelihood. And so I would love going to my grandparents and spent a lot of time out there. And, um, you know, as I've gotten older and raising my own kids, then I started buying some of my own cattle with Clint, who is one of the business partners, but also my boyfriend. And we've been together about six years. He had cattle. I started buying just my own when him and I got together and had kind of started. That's where the farmstead meets comes from, as I always say, it's not I'm not a large rancher. You know, it was more just my own little farm. And then he definitely had more cattle. And then our other partner also has cattle. He has a small feedlot and is able to kind of bring that to the table and opportunities and connections within Northern California to other ranchers that have grain fed cattle. Clint is also a contractor. 
So he's able to run heavy equipment, do other areas that are needed. He has all of the equipment and tractors and pickups and trucks and trailers. And I'm definitely more social. I enjoy, I have a master's degree in education. I enjoy educating people. I'm a teacher is my main career. And so we kind of all bring something different (laughs) to the business. I think that's super, super important is to like find partners who, I mean, in life or in business who bring something to the table that you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're not, um, I never want to portray, you know, we have a lot of huge ranches, you know, around here, or I know that in other States, you know, you're talking about thousands of acres and, you know, a couple thousand head of cattle. And that's, that's a totally different practice than what we're doing. But that doesn't mean that consumers can't still connect with those ranchers. And it doesn't mean that we can't move toward a different system getting away from huge producers, basically, that have been the middlemen that um, huge packing companies and not to say that we, there isn't a need for those. But I think that just educating people and trying to see maybe there's a way that people can still continue to raise, you know, 50 head of cattle and still sustain that. Because ranching and farming isn't something that is as popular as it used to be. Right. And I was talking to, actually, I've talked to several other guests about it. They said that when COVID forced shutdowns of a lot of the bigger places, and you're you're in California, so it probably would have definitely forced shutdowns there. The smaller ranches were really able to like thrive because they were able to help their communities. Yeah. And that's really kind of where we fit in. What happened was, is that we've talked about this for a few years. We've got a friend down the road that's like, Hey, I know that at the farmer's markets, they, you know, they're selling their grass fed beef and have, you know, maybe that's something we should do. And you know how you're just sitting around and talking about these things. And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I was just like, I'm not sure if that's something. Okay. How do we do this? How do we get USDA approved? And it wasn't, you know, something that it was kind of just a back thought. And then when we went to the store and there were ribeyes for $24.99 a pound, I'm like, okay, and that's grain fed. But what I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like there should not be that much of a shortage right now. And so within a couple of weeks, I started researching. I connected with a USDA processor that's in Willows, uh, California, which is about 30 minute drive for us. And they're like, yeah, we're USDA. It's not something that, you know, that wasn't their main, they're a processing facility. They're like, yeah, I'm sure that we could work something out. And it was that easy, really was to connect with them and be able then to offer. I was like, okay, there's no way that people can afford $24 a pound. Hamburger was at, you know, $9, $10 a pound in the store. So we did it really as a response, like, okay, how do we connect our consumers to our ranchers? And I'm like, even really promoted people go buy live from a farmer or rancher. It doesn't have to be USDA. You can buy that live. You can set it up with the butcher. And so really just educating people about buying local. Yeah. One of the people that I was speaking with, he said he's got all of his calves sold up until next spring, like all the ones that are coming this year. He's already sold them all to, you know, friends and fans. And he doesn't have a big operation. I think he's got like 70 head, like, so not a big operation by any means. And he was like, yeah, I, he's like, when COVID happened, everyone was pretty much like, when can I get the next one? Yep. And he's like, it's been for a lot of small ranches. It's kind of been a a blessing in disguise. Mm Mm-hmm. 
No, and I think that that's great. I think that it reminds people, you know, where's their food coming from? Why are people, why do we go into panic mode? We watch people around here panic, go to the grocery stores, wipe the aisles clean. And I'm like, we're in rural America. I'm not, I don't even want to know what it looked like in the middle of a city. Yeah. uh, So at that time we were living about an hour North Dallas, but we were in a pretty rural area. Like we were 10 miles outside of a town and the town had about 10,000 people in it. And when I would go down by my work, which was in a Dallas suburb, like it's like middle upper class got probably close to like 800,000 people living in that city. Mm-hmm. When I would go into a store there, there was nothing. I could not find anything that I needed aside from like, I can find batteries and apples. <laughs> and yeah. when I would go to one of the stores up close to where I lived and it, it they're both Walmarts. So I was going into a Walmart. I could find everything that I needed up where like I was more rural and I was like, people are just panicking. There's absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important that like as a society, this to me is more, I use the word, but movement. We talk a lot about, you know, the Saturday will be small business Saturday. And we, we as a society talk a lot about supporting local, but what does it really mean to support local? And so that's been one of my big, I guess, portions of this business is it's more than just us selling meat because now we have this little store and we're selling local breads. um, We're selling art. We have necklaces. We have other jewelry. We have candles and so on. Anything that I can find that's really made local because even some things that are said, you know, okay, they're made in America. They might have logos on them or different things, but the the items are still coming from China. And so we really try to pride ourselves in made completely in America items. And so just kind of just trying to have that whole movement and shift and mindset. Do you run the social media for your business? Yeah, I have you been. Do, <laughs> you're doing a great job. I like, okay, I'm not even joking. I see your post pop up. And I think we've been friends on Facebook for like maybe two weeks and I've followed your Instagram for about that long. And I think the Facebook page a little bit more recently, at least once when I'm on scrolling every time I get on and I'm on between three and five times a day, I see something from your business. Yeah, no, I try. And I try to like use it not in, you know, I don't want to also flood people out where they're like, oh, we're tired of seeing this. But we try to do uh, what I try to do is feedback from what people want. So add a recipe, you know, because that's something we've had a lot of requests for that. So I'm like, okay, I need to be better about that. But also just putting educating people and also promoting other small businesses really is important to me. And, um, you know, we go to farmers market up here there's a little community and it's really important that we're not in competition with each other but really you're definitely more united and trying to help each other out so if I have a vendor that's selling pork next to me then I don't sell my pork there and she's selling her honey and now her honey's in the store and it really is about being you know coming together and supporting each other so I'm also a photographer. I have like a whole oh. photography and like branding business outside of this. And something wow. that we talk about like in the creatives community is this idea of collaboration over competition. And it's really about like people who would normally like be in competition. Two of my you know best friends are also photographers. We all shoot weddings. We all shoot seniors. We all shoot families. <laughs> so like that would be someone who you'd be seen to be in competition with. But we've decided that we're not doing like we're not playing that game. So like even if 
I were to get an inquiry from the exact same person as her and she booked the job, I'm going to be excited for her. Like I'm choosing, I'm choosing to like, let those collaborations be like the better part those relationships be the better part of the business. Right. And it's kind of just like, to me, we used to call, I used to do economic development and really it's just an organic type of community really like if somebody comes to someone else and that's the type of business that they're looking for, maybe someone else has a different, you know, that's, that's America. It's really, that's what makes it so great is that we all have the opportunity to do something. We have, I have some friends that are in Susanville and they started selling grain fed beef around the same time, totally different operation, not like a meat, you know, they're not selling, they're only selling the beef. And she said, um, Hey, like I shared all of their stuff. They only, I'm not exactly sure how many they had. They had a certain amount and then they're like, we'll be ready, you know, again next fall. And so, So the important part is, is I was like, well, you know, driving to Susanville, that's not really something that's a couple hours away. Well, you know where it is because you're from Quincy, but that wasn't, why not share? Why not let the people in her area buy from her? That's, and so that's what we're all about is connecting the consumer to what's the best fit for them. I may not always have live butcher ready Um, product for them because if we take some in we usually like to take in like nine all at once get everything done it's just easier it's just we have a different business model so maybe someone else has to buy live so it's all about what is the need just like you with photography what's the need that this person has maybe the other person has a better you know schedule that week maybe they have access to somewhere that you don't for whatever reason it may be oh my gosh I'm just like I'm so excited to talk to you about this. This is like my jam. I love collaboration. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I feel like a lot of the time in ranching and in agriculture, it's people don't have a collaborative attitude. Like this idea of collaboration within these particular industries is like new when you are someone who Mm -hmm. would be in direct competition. So what made you decide that that's how you wanted to do it? You know, it's funny because I think that Um, still people are kind of like, okay, that seems like a weird business model. Business means money. So in order to make money, you have to have a better product. You have to be, so I'm kind of um, an in-between, I would say, that I've even thought about this being like, oh, does the Farmstead Connection actually need to be a private nonprofit? And we kind of run it differently eventually. And then we have Farmstead Meats. And I'm like, no, I, you know, I just truly believe that it's important for all of us to work together. And if that's the model that we're choosing to use, either it may work, it may not, but I'm willing to do that. And I think what makes us stand out, though, is that, you know, all three owners have jobs. This isn't like, oh, we didn't quit our jobs and we're, you know, dependent on this. And so what that does is most people, the drive behind their businesses is the money, right? They've got to make the money. So that is a priority. And for us, that's not actually the priority. The priority is education, collaboration, and sustainability. So it's more like our whole mission statement isn't around my product is better than yours, buy from us, but more of a movement. And we would like to see things shift this way. And if it and that and then the money will follow based on our product and hopefully it's, you know, I hope that I can do a 
great enough job at it so that people will see that and will want and and other ranchers and farmers hopefully we can continue to buy from them and i don't want to just say shouldn't just say ranchers and farmers artisans as well one thing that makes us unique is we buy everything wholesale we're not there on consignment so i can buy you know twenty five hundred dollars in candles and sugar scrubs and um, air fresheners from a lady that's a friend of ours and she doesn't have to worry about that product sitting there not selling she's got her money she's done so i think that those are all things that make us stand out is that we're we're really there to help sincerely support but you're right not everybody sees it like that you know i'm sure that along the way we'll have people that are upset if maybe i don't choose to purchase their livestock over someone else's um you know sometimes that happens but we also have to be really picky about what the quality is and where it's coming from. And well, something else that I've noticed in talking to producers or people who are interested in education, a lot of like the old school multi-generational ranchers where like maybe (laughs) they're a little bit older, they're kind of just like not interested in sharing their knowledge, not interested in being collaborative. And I'm like, at what point does that hurt your business? Because there's plenty of young people like me, like you, who are like hungry for knowledge, hungry for education. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's not because we want to take their business away. It's because we want to share it, (laughs) share it with everybody. Yeah. And I think that you're right. Um, It's just, I'm really enjoying talking to you because that's something that, um, that I do struggle with because I've always got that kind of in the back of my mind, not so much from my family, but people that I've, you know, come in contact with or just, or just people that, in general, growing up in a ranching kind of community, you're very like, it's not so much just air your dirty laundry, but you know, like a lot of old sayings, you keep everything to yourself. And really that's because you were afraid you didn't want somebody to know your business, know your finances. What if they take something? And I think that our generation isn't in that same mindset. My grandma is actually a huge um, advocate for sharing knowledge though it's interesting she's uh 75 she sits on our school board she's the one that her family is generational ranching she's uh, part of the cattle women's team county cattle women's she sits on a usda collaborative board and she's really she's it's important she says you have to share with the up-and-coming generations because if we're not sharing that knowledge, that's why ranching and farming is dying. Or people think that they just go to the grocery store and that these items just magically appear. I used to laugh. I'm like, nobody really thinks that. Like she would. They do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, no way. (laughs) I was, so I grew up in a community. It wasn't a ranching community. It was a logging community, but there was people who who had cattle and who had ranches and stuff. And then I went to college in a community where it wasn't it's not, a, I went to college in Reno. It's not a ranching community, oh, yeah. but there's, there's lots of ranching and livestock in the immediate area. Yes. But I had friends in college who moved up from Vegas and they'd only lived in the city. And I was talking about, I think I was talking about like processing like chickens or pigs or something like that. And they're like, you'd like raise them for like a whole year and then butcher them. And I'm like, where do you think your food comes from? I was like, somebody, like somebody always somebody is raising those animals for like for that purpose so that you can have chicken when you go to the store so you can have bacon when you go to the store 
I was like, it doesn't just like right. appear that that comes from somebody's hard work. Right, right. No, and it's it's just I, you know, I guess I just was so naive to think that people really did did think that. And they do. They think that. But then at the same time, when you start explaining, we have this new wave where it's like, no, we want to make sure that they're raised humanely. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of, we have so many different consumers and I have people on both sides of the spectrum that really want to make sure that like, that the pigs are able to go out of their pen, but they don't have a full understanding, you know, when we're talking about pasture pork. And I explain that I have three operations, definitely not like a huge processor and the pigs aren't squished together. But I'm like, I also have to make sure that they're um, secure at night, <laughs> you know, right. and so I'm like, there's also, and pigs are a little more hardy, obviously, but you have to, you have to keep them in for safety or they need shelter. And I want to make sure that I'm bringing them in and that they're also, I have a dirt area and I have pasture for them to go out in, but I also have concrete. And so it's just really educating people so that they're not thinking, oh no, I have to have pork that's only free roam. And I'm like, well, that's fine if they're pasture pigs, but I also have feeder pigs that are not going to go out and forage on the blackberry bushes. (laughs) Like they're going to root around, but that's not the way that they're genetically designed. And so I actually have three different operations kind of going right now so that I can try to meet the consumer needs. But I'm also upfront with them because there's a whole area that if people don't have that background, they're not clearly understanding, actually, that could really hurt the animal, leaving them out and not feeding them some type of grain. <laughs> they're not going right. to get enough nutrients. So I think just there's a lot of misconceptions and people thinking that, and I don't want to, I don't want anyone to think I'm, I guess it's just a large, I'll just say like a large scale feedlot for cattle. A lot of people think that's what we mean when like all ranching and that's not true. So it's like grass-fed cattle. That's how most people ranch. So um, a lot of times I'll get people that are like, no, but I need it to be organic. I'm like, well, there's actually not a lot of organic ranches around. <laughs> I was actually having, I had a conversation literally yesterday. I was doing another episode and I was like, can you explain like what it really means to have organic meat? And she was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double check. I'm going to look it up. So she looked it up and she was like, it has to meet these three things. I was like, but, you know, if the animal gets sick, then they have to be treated. And that automatically, like if they're treated, then they're not organic anymore. Right. And yeah. And so I'm like, that opens up like this whole other can of worms. I'm like, I don't have an opinion either way. I think if an animal's sick, regardless of its purpose, it should be treated for that sickness. But yeah. And <laughs> we, um, you know, and that's why we're not and um, we do not purchase it doesn't mean that we couldn't purchase in the future livestock from an organic um, farmer ranch. I wouldn't um, actually most likely, I don't want to say ever, um, it would be very difficult to sell something organic. And when you start fact checking a lot of places that also say that they're organic, a lot of times the birth has occurred on the organic ranch land. So maybe only 100 acres of even a 2000 acre ranch is organic because it's very difficult to become certified organic for um, sustainable cattle ranching. Not so much when we're talking about organic farming. Let's say we're talking about an orchard or we're talking about corn or we're talking about um, a full organic gardening type of farming situation. You can do all of that, let's say on 50 acres. 
But when you're talking about thousands of acres for organic for cattle, most places are not. They'll have a limited section of their ranch that's organic. They call the calf organic because it's birthed in that area. But it doesn't mean that they've foraged in a full organic ranch setting. And do I care really either way personally? No, but what I do care about is that people are giving um, factual information. So that's something that's been, um, I would say that that's probably what is a driving force for me is that I'm very hard headed when it comes to those kinds of things where I'm like, just tell people the truth. You know, we, we are not organic. It's very hard to become organic. Um, it takes about, I, ha I am talking right now to a ranch that's out west um, of us and they're on year five where they do soil samples and checking because the thing is is that if your water source is coming from a creek and you're irrigating flood irrigating or wherever it's coming from you have to make sure that there weren't any byproducts that were passed along through that stream or through that water system and they're constantly testing your soil they're testing your water it takes about seven years and it's and once again we're talking about this is only going to be a 600 acre ranch and these people have about i think they have 150 head they only keep them on that 600 acres for a very short time four months and then they're moving them to a different fields so when we're talking about organic what does it really mean were they organic the entire life cycle that's tough with cattle, not right. so hard with small livestock. So it's just, I'm just kind of throwing this out there because I, I always encourage people to ask these questions and I'm not trying to be a whistleblower on anyone, but it's important to really understand those facts. And I just encourage people to ask those questions if they truly are looking for organic. And yes, were they vaccinated? Were they wormed? Our pigs, we do natural worming through pumpkins. We They eat pumpkins. It's a natural wormer for them. Our pork, none of our pork. Pigs are just different. They're a little more hardy. But with our cattle, you know, there may come a time where obviously something has to be vaccinated. So then we would have to share that with the consumer. But I'm also not going to let an animal die of pneumonia because we're choosing not to vaccinate. That's all super good information for, you know, for consumers who are really interested in organic and like what that really does mean. Because like, that's a lot more nuanced than I had any idea. Yeah, um, no, I know. And I don't want to, there's, there's so much that goes into it. And, and I'm not an organic rancher. And I know that there are organic ranchers that would have a lot more feedback and information than I'm even giving. But this is definitely just what I've learned over the years, working with people who are either trying to become organic or have worked for organic ranches in the past. So you mentioned that cattle, it's a lot harder for it to be feasible for sustainability purposes. So when you're talking about like sustainability when it comes to animal ranching what does that like what does that mean when we're talking about it as far as cattle they're a large forage animal and so they're going to take up a lot more space they're going to eat more grass than um, you know other smaller livestock and so when we're talking about cattle, we have to think about, okay, what are your ranch limb practices where they, you don't want them overeating their areas. Um, it really depends on the area. And so I'm speaking, I just want to be clear, you know, I'm speaking more to just um, our Northern California areas, um, not so much. It's different state to state, what those practices are going to look like. So for us, we keep them in the valley during the summer. 
in irrigated fields and we have to move them from field to field. And this is exactly how my, um, similar to how my grandparents practiced as well, except during the summer, they're up in the mountains. So as a kid, my grandparents would either go, you know, where Westwood is. <laughs> so they would either, so they would go up um, past Chester, your, you know, your cattle would go up there and be in the mountains because the mountain feed and you don't want your livestock to be foraging too long in one area. There's grazing that can occur in logging areas. And I know that that's a whole separate issue, but when we're really talking about sustainable grazing, we can also touch on right now, the wildfires that have occurred and grazing can, I know this is, I'm kind of <laughs> going off. I have, Sorry, but I have so many opinions about <laughs> the wildfires. We're going to come back to that because I definitely want to. Yeah, no. And so that's part of that sustainable ranching practice is being able to take your cattle to a certain area during summertime, depending on where you have. For us, we stay, we have to stay in the valley during that time on irrigated pasture because we do not have enough cattle to have to go to thousands of acres in the mountains. But a lot of people here either take their cattle to Oregon or take them up into the mountains, graze, then they'll bring them back to the valley during the winter. And when I say valley, it, I could be more like the foothills. And so we move our cattle into more west of Rebel F and they'll go out into the hills. And when we're talking about this and sustainable ranching, this this is what's important is that you haven't overgrazed an area because then your feed is not going to come back appropriately and have the nutrients necessary for your cattle. And so, you know, right now we aren't getting a lot of rain. So a lot of people are also having to feed hay and it's important then that you're able to do that. And if you're not, you know, there are people that maybe didn't don't, that's a lot of money. You're talking about hundreds of dollars a day feeding mm -hmm. huge bales of hay. And so there's people that need to then flood the market and get rid of their cattle if they don't have a place to put them. And so really those sustainable ranch practices are more than just being able to sustain ranchland management. There's also financial management that you need to be prepared for and set aside and ensuring that you have all of that. So, you know, I always say that's kind of all of that in a little nutshell, but that's really what we mean by sustainability. What are we doing to make sure we're not overgrazing? What are we doing to make sure that the cattle are getting all the proper nutrients? What are we doing to make sure that we're not or that we could be grazing areas that could be preventing wildfires. Okay, yeah. So let's let's transition into talking yeah, about yeah. the wildfire deal. Yeah. Okay, so for listeners that did not turn on the news this summer or did not consume anything that wasn't COVID related or election related, there was I mean, and this isn't every year in California and in a lot of heavily forested areas. I know Montana's had a lot of issues with wildfires the last few years. But in particular, Northern California had a number of fires that were devastating. And they have for the last mm -hmm. several years. Mm -hmm. Both my parents, where they live in Quincy and in Greenville, they were mandatory yeah. evac twice, voluntary evac more than that. And Paradise, the Paradise fire that happened oh, a few years yeah. ago, my sister's grandfather's house burned. They were lucky to get out. But a lot of people in a lot of land, it was awful. Yeah. No, it's been devastating. Like it's, uh, you know, and this is probably, I was just talking last night and 
it's hard for me because I'm, I'm a person that I'm like, okay, I have to stay narrowed down to what I, what I need to focus on <laughs> because I go everywhere. But something that I would love to get involved in more is Ranchland management and what are we doing to graze those areas when, you know, I know that it was the big joke, but raking the forest, but literally what that means is it could be grazing. It could be better practices um, with our, with logging management. But when we're talking about cattle, there's something called match graze. I don't know if you've looked it up yet, but Sonoma State, I don't have a ton of information on this, but I did sign up for it and I've looked online. They set this up kind of in response also to the wildfires, but trying to connect can, you know, property owners and either large logging companies what do we have for cattle, for sheep, and trying to connect basically livestock owners and landowners. And it's called Match Graze. And it's Sonoma State. So I, I signed up to kind of get more information. I think it's great. The issue is, is government owns a lot of land. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, how are we, what is government, you know, how can they work Okay, so in Nevada, and obviously it's very, very different landscape, northern Nevada. It's high desert. But yes, I spent a lot of time in northern Nevada. Okay, but essentially they'll rent the land to ranchers and let their mm-hmm. livestock come on. Yeah, the contract, bureau, yeah. the BLM does. And I don't know if California has something similar. But real quick, before we dive into it a little bit deeper, there may be some people listening who don't understand like what's causing the massive wildfires because they haven't lived there or been in an area where, so a lot of what's causing it is that when the tree pushes a little shed, it's just all sitting on the forest floor and then it'll get dry over the summer. A lot of the areas in Northern California are like have drier summers and then it'll catch fire. And then everything basically just goes up in flames because there's been no, I don't want to say no efforts to like basically clean up the forest floor, but there's been, not a ton of effort limited to, yeah <laughs> limited thank you limited efforts mm-hmm. into maintaining like clearing clearing all of that out due and to environmental that, factors you know part of that is that there were there were environmentalists and movements that cleaning up those natural habitats were detrimental to species that environmentalists felt um, needed to be protected but there's that's a whole other I know that's a whole other area yeah. but I do think that it's important for people to get educated in that area as, as they're listening I would encourage anyone that really cares about this and knowing more about it because I have a lot of friends that are part of that are loggers I generally if I get into like a heated conversation with someone I don't like to argue about something that I don't know all the facts about and I always refer them um, I have a friend that um, went to school he's uh, natural resources bachelor's degree from Humboldt State um, he does a great job he works for Sierra Pacific Industries and he does a really good job of explaining, though, even about the spotted owl and about the species that were protected, who were actually, it's interesting, they live and try to stay in the areas that were logged. <laughs> right. So so there's a lot of misconceptions. And I, I guess I'm allowed to say my personal um, feelings oh, yeah. on here <laughs> is, you know, and I know that it's important to be politically correct, but I think that it's important that we also speak kind of the truth about this, that 
there were there was a whole town burnt down and we've had several wildfires so at what point and i'm not saying that a certain species lives didn't matter but there were people that lost hundreds of their of their cattle people lost thousands of homes humans died so at what point does something mean more than this other thing because of us not being able to properly take care of the forest so, thousands of things yeah. lives are being lost <laughs> Yeah, and not, and I mean, certainly not just people lives, livestock lives, right. wild, wild right. animal lives. Something that my dad, um, I, well, okay, I think it was my dad that said it. Certainly somebody in my life, life said it. When I was a young adult and the laws kind of got much more strict, I would say probably like 2010, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there is when they started tightening up a lot more on it. He said there's a lot, whole lot of people living in big cities that have no business legislating what goes on in the forest towns because they don't know anything about it. They mm-hmm. there's people who believe that because they have an idea of what it should look like in a different part of the state without mm-hmm. ever having set foot there or spent time with the people there or mm-hmm. spent time looking at what that environment looks like or what'll actually be best for mm-hmm. that specific place that make the laws or that push the laws into being laws. And there's species that actually aren't indigenous to our forests that are now protected. And so mm-hmm. I, I really just encourage anyone um, that ever has strong feelings about environmental issues to really research or go out and talk to someone that lives in that area. Um, logging isn't something that I wouldn't say that that's not my area of expertise, but you know, it's definitely an area where our two worlds have collided. And um, you may have known the people, there was a big um, story. I wish I could remember their name. They, I thought that they took, they took their cattle to Plumas County and maybe they were also from Oroville. I'm not sure they were really affected by this last fire south of Quincy. And they, they lost a lot of their cattle and they actually showed pictures. The cattle were burned. Um, They weren't able, it was like, Uh, It was, I couldn't, uh, I actually had to take a break from reading some of it, you know, just because they weren't allowed in there at one point. This was really is, was a result of environmentalists and Mm -hmm. them not being properly able to log and graze those areas any longer. And they basically told about all this. I would highly encourage you to, and I can try to send you the link. They had posted a lot of this on Facebook those are the areas where I'm like, okay, something's got to give like <laughs> to see, yeah. to see that was, was pretty heart wrenching. You know, I, I did see it. I think a lot of my friends and family live in that area still. And mm-hmm. I, I know I saw, um, I saw the big story that you're referring to. And I also saw a lot of like littler stories of like mm-hmm. friends whose houses were burned or whose families lost stuff or pets oh the pets going missing was are like yeah pet like pets going missing because they're scared and um mm-hmm. yeah a lot and a lot of that is a direct result of policies and laws that have been pushed into action by people who have no business legislating them right and so I am really that's that's the full concept of this and that's why I kind of called it farmstead it's not it's not this big ranch um we're not we have a lot of friends that 
you know, like I said, they have big ranches and maybe they're just focused more on selling direct to consumer from their large ranches. And that's fine. Really, our concept, though, is about like connecting people from anything small like rabbits and poultry all the way to cattle. And it's not just about what people eat. But it, it, it's all this. This is sustainability. This is how are we united as a cycle? And what does that life cycle really look like? And is human maybe sometimes too many policies and procedures and humans looking out for humans? Is it really helping the situation? And and when you really look into things, it's usually a money trail. And it's connected yeah. more to big business. And we just don't. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll stay small and, and I, you know, we'll I'll do podcasts here and there and I'll educate, <laughs> you know, Northern California or maybe a few people that listen in and and get to hear this. But my dream would be that um, I also do some consulting on the side. And something that I want to see come of that is that I want to help people do what I'm doing in their towns, in their state and open up that I would encourage someone that's um, listening that if they're um, an entrepreneur in any way and they love having, let's say they only have five acres and they love having their little farm animals, it doesn't mean that they couldn't do something like this. If you have passion and drive, you can connect your local honey dealer. You can connect the lady down the road that makes cards, get the person that pours soaps and lotions. It doesn't just have to be big farms and ranches. And get the other guy that lives down the road that has to six steers for sale. So I think that maybe, you know, you could only do something for your little small community or maybe you're a huge entrepreneur and you have hundreds of thousand dollars to invest. And I would highly encourage you to open, you know, a USDA processing facility that could be just dedicated to local meat. So I guess, you know, my big dream is to be able to educate people and encourage people to follow a passion related to bring it back to local. I love it. We keep all of the business cards for everyone that we sell from. I sell these really cool boards. They're more like a serving board. Um, you could turn them over um, and cut on them. But I have people that are like, oh, I didn't like those boards. I'm like, here, go on their website, buy directly from them. So once again, you can't be I don't think that it works to do. I just I think that we're going away from that certain type of competition and that might work for some people's business model, but that's not that's just not what I'm passionate about. Love it. and you're obviously very passionate about buying local. So what if somebody is like not really sure how to find a local business or how to find like a local maker like let's say somebody down here where I live in Austin is like, "Oh my god, how do I find a local beef producer yeah. here?" Do you have any suggestions on how somebody might do that? I have a great answer to that question. I had a lady that was calling me this morning from Georgia. Get this Georgia number calling at 645 this morning. And I'm thinking, oh, it must just be a, a fake call. So yeah. I didn't answer it, you know. And then at 715, it calls again. And it was this sweet older lady. Um, she's from Thomaston, Georgia. And she saw, she found us on Google, on Facebook somehow. And she really was hoping we could ship. And I said, I, she was looking for 
sausage. And she looked at the reviews that people had said how, you know, great the bacon was. And she was like, oh, I'm just really looking for, could you ship that back here? And I said, I can't, unfortunately, we're just not large enough. We're not at that capacity yet. So I said, do you text? And she's like, yeah, this phone, perfect. So I got off the phone with her and I found two places in her area within 30 miles that ship or she could drive and pick up. And so I connected her. Um, I did a little research to make sure that they were, what did their reviews look like? Probably more research than what she, you know, I felt like she was maybe capable of completely doing. And so that is definitely something that I also do. (laughs) People call me from other states. That's not the first time this has happened because they're hoping we can ship and we're just not there yet. So I connect them. And I even, I found people, I found other ranches. I'm part of a lot of groups all around the United States that like livestock groups. So I can connect people from anywhere from goats, rabbits. I have, I'm part of all kinds of really unique niche groups on Facebook and I'm able to connect people. I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of like being in a collaborative community is that you're like, okay, I'm in Northern California, but Harley lives in Austin. Who can I find that's near Austin? You just post in a Facebook group. Hey, who's in Austin? Drop your website links. And then Mm -hmm. you're like, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and you know, that's the beauty of technology too. So there's, there's things about um, technology where I'm like, I'm very old fashioned, but then there's really unique situations like that where I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, Someone needs a hair sheep and they live in Virginia. I'm able to, I scroll through and I'm like, Oh wait, I am part of the hair sheep group. And, and I talk to people in those groups. I do have to say overall farming and ranching is a really it is a really neat community. I'm not as, I'm definitely not part of so much like a rodeo community, but Clint's family is. And one thing that I've found is that just how gracious and helpful people are like, you know, Clint's family and him, I've seen them post saying, Hey, I need a, is anybody coming back from Montana? They're needing a horse shipped out or Texas. And people are so willing to just go and grab that, you know, either livestock or pet or horse for someone and bring it back for them on their way back or or whatever the case may be. And I think those are areas where we take for granted because someone else, like my dad's family, they're primarily from the city and they would think that that's just weird. Like, what about the liability? What if you get sued? Oh my gosh, you're transporting, you know? And it's like, no, we don't even think about that. We're just helping the neighbor. And so, right. um, so I think that there's a there's also like a mindset and a mentality difference. Absolutely. That just okay, so that just reminded me of a really funny story. When my mom, one of her good friends, this was when I was in college still, and um I'm from Quincy and the friends house was out um in Fallon, which is about a three and a half hour drive. Fallon, Nevada. It was about a three and a half hour drive. And I don't know, I th- I think it was her the friend's mom died, so she was moving a bunch of the horses back to California. And when you move any kind of live non-domestic, well, not like standard domestic, so like not cats or dogs, basically, right. um, animals across that particular state line, yeah, you have to have like check. all kinds of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't, we didn't have it. They'd literally just come from California like the week before. So there was no 
vet check and it's like three in the morning. Well, cause, okay. So this friend is like, she runs on, she really runs on ranch time. So when we said we were going to leave for Fallon, it really meant <laughs> we're leaving at 6 PM and we're not getting there till nine. Then we got to get all the horses loaded up and then we got to yeah. you know, bullshit around for another couple hours. And I'm yeah. like, it's like three in the morning. I'm tired. I'm getting pissed off because I'm ready to go to bed. <laughs> My mom's getting pissed off at me because she's ready to go to bed and just drive her drumpy. <laughs> her grumpy kid all the way back home. And so by the time we get there, it's, it's probably about two 30 or three by the time we actually get back to the checkpoint and they're asking, <laughs> they're asking for the papers and I'm so tired. And my mom is so tired. She just like starts sobbing and she's like, the owner died and I don't have them. Just like tear. Like, she yeah, was, we're so exhausted. And they're just like, okay. And they just kind of let us go. <laughs> they're like okay these people are a hot mess <laughs> yeah they're, they're like this is a hot mess express just leave Get out of here. <laughs> well it is it is really tough you know there's all of these restrictions and re- you know and regulations and obviously we understand for certain reasons right. um in instances like that so i'm glad that you guys had a good experience because that could have been bad yeah we we were i think it was just like it was the middle of the night and they're like yeah, sitting, they're sitting in between Susanville and Reno. Like there's yep. nothing through there. <laughs> I say, and you know, when there's something going on, there's like 12 cop cars lined up. They're just sitting all yeah. on the highway, but it, there's not literally nothing going on. And they're just like bored. And they're just like, this woman drives through at two 30 and just starts sobbing. As <laughs> soon as she's asked for papers, they're probably like, this is not my problem tonight. Just yeah. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Texas definitely doesn't have all of those regulations. We, I hadn't been to Texas until last summer. And uh, my dad was actually born in Dallas. And his mom and whole family were from Lano. And so they, um, it is, it's actually not that far from Austin. Okay. Uh, Do you know where Marble Falls is? I do. Okay, so um, if you're in, we stayed in Marble Falls, but you can drive out to Lano. It's about 30 minutes from Marble Falls. And so it's a little tiny kind of town. And and they also had moved up to Lubbock and so all these different places. So we tried to see as much of Texas as we could. We were in Houston, Marble Falls, went to San Antonio, went to Austin, Lano, Lubbock, Amarillo. (laughs) Yeah, we, we didn't get to go to Dallas, but I was able to visit like some of the cemeteries where they were buried. And so it was really neat, but everybody was so nice. It's very different than it definitely has. I wouldn't say Austin wasn't necessarily not that people weren't nice. It was just a different feel than going. Austin definitely has a different feel, but in all the other areas, it's like everyone's family. If somebody was like really interested in, I don't want to say starting their own like collaborative Mm -hmm community but if they were interested in doing something similar to like what you do what would be your like their first step or like a what advice would you give them oh um so first I would um have them evaluate are they raising all of their own livestock for this um or are they raising none of it like you know kind of like a little checklist what kind of business are we going to be are we our own farm and we're going to raise all of our own are we do we have a couple of the livestock like kind of like how we we have beef and pork but we don't have a lamb or chicken operation and and then um figure out okay what type of business are we doing and then um if they're wanting to do something related specifically to meat 
<clears throat> finding a USDA facility. Um, all of the meat, if you're going to sell any cuts, has to be USDA. Find out um, what kind of licenses or permits are required in your area. If you're wanting to open a store and maybe only sell, you know, local items and you're not looking so much to sell meat because um, we just have a little bit of everything. Um, I definitely would start by contact your Farm Bureau, contact your um, local um, USDA office and just talk to them about like, hey, who do you have that, you know, obviously there's confidentiality and they can't always share a ton of information, but maybe ask that you are able to even um, offer a night where you say here it's like an evening, you know, Zoom event or maybe a podcast or whatever um, you feel like in your area may work well and just reach out. Use social media. Um, I we have chickens, but I don't have enough chickens to ever produce my own actual whole chickens or eggs. I don't want to sell my eggs. I don't. I think that if I can give some advice to people, it's don't do more than you can handle. And even if you think that you want to do it all, um, it's really hard to do that. And I am a let me do it all myself kind of person. But you can only do so much. You'll be overwhelmed and you'll burn out. And that's not also really the point of, a, of this type of business model. So I found um, a friend of mine who she has an egg business. She's not um, in full production yet. Uh, she was like, well, I'm not even sure what to do. I found her all the paperwork online and like two days later, she said, guess what? I can sell my eggs in your store. And so, um, I was so excited. Like, and now I have fresh eggs that we can start offering January 1st. Um, and it wasn't even, yeah. And, and then we're also, so our store is a sub store. It's a pop-up store, basically kind of model inside of, um, a cafe, but we have our own business license. We have our own, um, you know, uh, California has a lot more regulations, but they we basically have our own resale permits. We also have our own occupancy permit from the city and there's a cafe inside of this building and they're going to be able to use her eggs now. So it's all about networking that like, oh my gosh, how awesome is this? Now are this keto cafe is also going to be using our meat. They're using um, her eggs and they can't use my meat for everything because um, maybe we're more expensive, um, but maybe they can only put one thing on the, on the menu to use. And so I would just highly recommend that people also don't get disappointed um, if some people don't want to buy from you or they can't afford it um, and you can't make everyone happy. And so I think finding um, other sustainable you know, farming and ranching practices that are similar, like-minded is a good place to start. So make a list of those items. It's okay to tell people no. If I could give a word of advice, I'm not very good at that. And, um, but you can't put everything of everyone's in the store, but be able to circulate that. A portion of our business model also, I'm not sure if you saw this, is I have two little stands inside of a little gas station um, in Las Molinas now. And um, the gas station is some friends of ours. It's a little country store. And they said, I don't, we don't have enough room to like give you a whole area. And they're like, but we think this is really neat. And I felt bad that people were having to drive 20 minutes to get bread on Saturdays from me. Uh, so 
they let me put these two little stands in there. So I also recommend to people, you could start small. You don't have to open up a big store. You could talk to someone local and say, hey, can you see if some of this meat's going to sell? Or can you see if some of my local candles are going to sell? And and go from there. Oh, but I think that's really, really in-depth and really valuable advice for someone who's really interested in doing something similar. Okay, now comes probably like the hardest question I'm going to ask you. It is what in your whole entire life, like everything you've ever done ever, what are you the most proud of? You know, I'm just going to, I'm very like into what comes first to mind. So I'm just going to go with that, that um, something I would say that it was getting my master's degree because my family is, um, has always supported education but I definitely don't come from a family where I'm one of the first to graduate college. And so, and my kids were able to watch me get my master's degree. So I got my bachelor's degree before I had kids and then didn't really think I would ever go back. Honestly, I had kids and then, and so, and I wasn't even going to walk the stage and my mom said, no, I'm bringing the kids and they're going to watch you do that because I want, you know, my, my mom's like, I think that it's important that they see that their mom went back to school and was able to do something like that. So it was, I would say it's, I'm more proud that I was able to share that moment with my kids. I love that. I personally, like I'm someone who really, really highly values education and I highly value formal education as well. I do. I think that that's super important. And I love that your kid, how, how old were they at that time? Let's see. So 2000, that was in January, 2017. I was trying to think I finished like December, 2016. So they are going to be 10 and 11. So in 2021, so four years ago. So what were they? Six and seven. Okay. So they're like old enough to yes, yeah, and all that. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, this is silly. I don't want to walk across the state. Like I just, it wasn't, that wasn't why I did it. And so I think that, but I'm so glad I did because you're right. Like that's, that's that whole formal education. And, um, yeah, there's a whole other, (laughs) that's a whole other podcast, but yeah, they definitely got to share the moment and understand what was going on. If someone wants to follow your social media or find you guys, check you out. Um, Oh, do you ship non-perishable products like to other states? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. That's very okay. easy. It's the perishable products that are tough for us just because dry ice is so expensive and I just don't have all that down yet. <laughs> okay. Perfect. One day. Where can people find you on social media or online? So we um, have Facebook and Facebook is, um, is Farmstead Meats. LLC. You can find us. You can also search us on Google. We should populate up right away. Um, and then um, we have an Instagram. Instagram is Farmstead 2020. And I do not have Twitter or any of um, I don't do much Twitter. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so we've got our um, Instagram and our Facebook. And then online, though, our website is www.farmsteadconnection. Sorry, the Farmstead Connection. Dot com and um, on the farmsteadconnection.com we also have a directory for local businesses but I would love if somebody else was ever interested in duplicating the farmstead connection and doing that in their own areas um, I offer consulting services to help you get set up with all of that and I built the website myself it's not great um, and there's a lot of areas that need a lot of help, but I definitely would recommend 
to anyone. It costs like a few thousand dollars when you hire someone to build one. Um, and so maybe just looking at ways, um, I'm actually partnering with Chico State right now um, through the Research Foundation. And I have four months of tech help right now from um, graduate students. And so just, um, you know, connect with whoever you can. Um, connect with your local, um, you know, business support systems. You, since you brought up Chico State, if someone has like a need of technological stuff um look for a local college or a local university yep. because undergrad students do a lot oh, of yeah. shit they'll build websites they do. Shit, so <laughs> yeah well thank you so much i appreciate you reaching out to me um this is yes. the first time i've done podcasts so <laughs> excellent well thank you so much i had so much fun yeah, talking Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.